Coming to you from the studios at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C., I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations that we have on the front lines. It's just that this time we have microphones in our faces, and you are listening in. This month, we welcome three guests. In studio, we have Reverend Dr. Angelique Walker-Smith. She is the Senior Associate for Pan-African and Orthodox Church Engagement at Bread for the World. Welcome, Angelique. Thank you. We're so excited to have you with us. Thank you. And then we also have... Okay, drum roll, drum roll. <laughs> forget it, forget it. Forget we have it. Sister Simone Campbell. Yay! Okay, can we just say score? <laughs> anyway, Sister Simone Campbell, you might remember her from one of the Democratic conventions where she gave a killer speech about health care, I believe, and the work that she had been doing on Nuns on the Bus. She's the executive director of Network, Network Lobby. And, and on the phone we have, drum roll, drum roll, drum roll, we have a representative from the Poor People's Campaign. Hello, y'all. This is 50 years in the making, 50 years in the making as of this year. Sierra Taylor is with us, and she's in charge of, of partnerships and, and networking and making sure that the partners are served in the Poor People's Campaign. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I've asked these three amazing women with decades of experience fighting poverty to join us on Freedom Road Podcast to help us understand poverty today. Who is impacted? How does it work? And what can we do about it? And if you would like to talk about it with us, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line at podcast at freedomroad.us or tweet to us at freedomroadus. A few years back, during the economic downturn, y'all, I had a really, really rough year. A really rough year. Now, I didn't grow up poor. I grew up in a pretty solidly middle-class family. We had six kids, mind you, so my mom and dad had to make the dollar stretch. But they were both professionals. But I had a hugely, like a big rough patch, and it was during the economic downturn. I was the executive director of a startup nonprofit, and we got to this point in the year where the money dried up. It was, I think it was like 2010. There was no more money. And so there was a, a, a one month in particular where I literally did not know where my next meal was coming from. It was the scariest thing in the world. And all I could say is thank God for pizza because it was cheap. And I felt, you know how you, you know. And it lasts. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you can get one pizza, you know, you get one pizza and it lasts for a whole week, actually. You mm-hmm. can make that thing stretch, right? But you also get all four food groups. Mm-hmm. And so I figured that out. You know, when you don't have, you figure out how to make that dollar stretch. But there was this one night in particular when I literally I had no money and no food. And I did not know where dinner was coming, and I was hungry. And it wasn't that I just didn't eat the last meal. It was that I had been scrounging for a while. So I called my sister, and I asked her, can I come down and eat with you tonight mm-hmm. and, and with your family? And she said, sure, you know, we're, we're stretching it too, but you can come. So I came. I went down to Lower Manhattan to hang out with her and have dinner with her. And, you know, the kids were all happy to see their auntie and, and she brings out dinner and she had one, one salmon sliced five ways for the five of us. 
five sprigs of broccoli and one small potato for each of us. I couldn't believe how generous she was. And let me tell you, she's a gourmet cook, so she made that thing taste amazing. <laughs> and I was on the train on the way back uptown looking around, and it struck me, what about the people who don't have a family safety net like that? What's your story? How do you connect with the question, the issue, the experience of poverty? I want to open this up first to Sierra. I mean, who is with the Poor People's Campaign? Sierra, how about you? Thank you, Lisa, for sharing that story. I know it all too well. And about the dollar pizza here in, in Manhattan. Thank goodness it's gotten me and my partner through mm-hmm. many a time. Yeah, so I come into this issue of poverty in a way that I feel like a lot of folks in my generation the so-called millennial generation, I hate that term, but that's just what it is, (laughs) where I grew up not knowing that I was poor. You know, I hear stories from a lot of my friends who tell me about how they classified themselves growing up, anywhere ranging from middle class to lower middle class to even someone saying they were upper class poor when they were growing up. My parents, I grew up in a two-parent household, so-called first-generation, middle class. My father dropped out of high school, middle school actually, to support his family when he was growing up in St. Louis. Mm. So my childhood, I didn't get to see him very often because he was always working. He worked at McDonald's and other sort of like fast food chains. My father worked hard Mm -hmm. and sort of instilled in me and my siblings this idea of the American dream. We had an American flag that would hang outside of our house. We were a very patriotic family, and he would always tell us, you know, if you work hard enough, like, you can you can do anything. You can go anywhere. Um, mm. And I believed that for the longest time. The My junior year of high school, my family was doing well. My mom was able to quit work and go back to school so my father was the only one as the main provider and he got this motorcycle this Harley he had always wanted it like I said he dropped out of school so he could support his family growing up and he worked really hard in our family and so it was just this one thing that he always wanted so he was finally able to afford it and and got it for himself Mm-hmm. And on Father's Day, my junior year, he got into a terrible motorcycle accident. He was hit by a car and thrown about 15 feet, wasn't wearing yeah. a helmet, wasn't wearing leathers, nothing. Wow. And incredibly enough, my father lived through this. Although he had this full-time job, he was now a manager, a district manager for Young Brands, his fast food chain, and had health care. About a few weeks into his being at the hospital, he had to stay in the hospital for months, as you can imagine. Lots of reconstructive surgeries and whatnot. He almost lost his leg. About a few weeks into this, my father was let go from his job. Oh, boy. And he was taken off of health care, and so my family had to use the savings that my father had in order to support him being in the hospital and his surgeries. His friends didn't come to visit him. Like I said, he was let go from his job in the middle of this. I and mean, he was too proud to take the like the, the, the leave money yeah. from his work. And so I saw myself, I saw my family dip into poverty and have stayed there ever since. And it has caused 
so much problems in my family and it's not just the economic piece of it it's not just being able to afford housing and water and food which has been difficult and my parents had their house foreclosed upon and whatnot but it's also the psychological and emotional toil that poverty has like I said my dad and 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 I think all my family has had trauma from this experience and terrible depression that has like torn my parents apart they're no longer together Mm the trauma of my younger siblings who have had to grow up in a different way than I did where they can't afford to get you know equipment to be in the sports clubs or you know having to have my grandmother support paying you know tuition for their school and just the feeling of not having enough mm-hmm. and so now I'm definitely seeing how my not only my family but myself are in poverty and are poor people. And I think that it's just been this interesting journey of just just this awakening yeah. um, of, of the realities of the poor and working class in this country. And so that's sort of my experience. And Sierra, coming. how how long how long has it been since your father's accident? It has been almost 10 years. Wow. It'll be 10 years in June. Uh, or no, 11 years in June. My God. So yes. a decade, a decade. You have not been able to crawl out of the pit of poverty in, no, and, for a and decade. No, and it's so expensive to be poor. Yes. <laughs> we'll get to that so later. <laughs> we'll get to that later. But it's true. You actually pay more money to be poor than you do to be rich in some ways. Exactly. Um, exactly. Simone, would you tell us your story? What's your? How did you get into this conversation about poverty? Well, Sierra, I really related when you said about folks you know growing up not knowing what they are because mm-hmm. my neighborhood growing up in Southern California in a tract house was just the only thing I knew and, Mm. you know, heard about middle class as a kid. And so that was middle class because we were in the middle and we were all together in it. And I think (laughs) it was probably middle class, lower middle class, post-World War II, tracked Mm. home. But I think the thing that was so formative for me was when we would go visit my grandparents in Colorado, where my parents were from, that on the way, we often went through Arizona and New Mexico, through the Navajo reservations, Mm -hmm. and seeing kids at the Navajo reservation Mm -hmm. or at Acoma in the Pueblos was so profoundly powerful. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget... We one time stopped at this little stand by the road, and the kids were selling the pots they had made. Mm-hmm. And I bought a pot from another young girl about mm-hmm. my age. Wow. But for me, that pot became the symbol of another world. And I was overwhelmed by the poverty and the realization that in Acoma, the one of the Pueblos, that they had to haul water up to the mm-hmm. top of the mesa. Mm-hmm. And that that was what the girls did. And it was that piece early on in my childhood that showed me there was something else. Mm-hmm. And that always felt wrong to me. Not mm-hmm. everybody should had to live in a tract house in Southern California, but it just seemed like everybody should have basics. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And so, well, now I look back, we were yeah, probably lower middle class. The When my dad would get, he worked in aerospace and periodically would get laid off with contracts shifting. And we all knew we had to tighten our belts and we couldn't have this and that but because dad's laid off. But mm-hmm. we always made it through and my parents held the anguish in a way that we as kids didn't experience it. Mm-hmm. And I owe my parents a lot from that mm-hmm. because the worry can be so corrosive. Yeah. But for me, it was this little pot that I held on to from the Navajo young woman that I um, that taught me there's another way in the world that's, that just didn't feel right. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for asking. Angelique, how about you? Oh, so my story mirrors the American story of people of African descent going back to the period of the Great Migration, mm-hmm. where we think about, you know, Isabel Wilkerson's work, oh which is gosh. just like amazing. Yes. So my story is really the story that she talks about in there. So my parents both coming, their heritage coming from the South, in Alabama specifically, Huntsboro, and then Tuskegee, but not really Little Texas, a rural community outside of Tuskegee, but okay. everyone knows Tuskegee. <laughs> so anyway, my father's mother... Um, came from Hertzboro, went up north to Cleveland by way of Chicago. She mm-hmm. had married down south, and then they went up to Chicago. Then she, they split, and she went to Cleveland. To Cleveland. And there she was, a single-headed household uh, leader. She was there. And then my mother came to live with her brother, came up from the south as well, went to Cleveland to live with her brother because there were more opportunities in the north. And so she came to stay with him Mm -hmm. as a teenager. She hadn't even graduated from high school. So they meet in a church, of course. My father's a pastor. She's an usher. He's the pastor. Well, they get together. And here I go. I'm the first child, right? So I land uh, on their step. And so born in Cleveland in the inner city in Glenville area, Mm -hmm. East Cleveland. And, of course, the, my father's mother, my grandmother, uh, when she got to Cleveland, lived in destitute poverty, just mm. destitute. Mm-hmm. In fact, my father's family, side of my father's family in Cleveland, there were 12 children. Mm. They were actually the cover the cover story of the Cleveland Plain Dealer, of mm. what poverty looks like in Cleveland. You no. can actually... Her oh, no. family was on the cover. Yeah, yes. <laughs> you can go back to the Cleveland Plain Dealer today oh my and see my family on the front cover. This is what poverty looks like in the wow. late uh, 30s, early 40s. It, it's oh, the front cover wow. story. That's how destitute my family was. And again, the result of the Great Migration, Grandma coming up and then being a female-headed household. Mm. So that's where my story it begins in Alabama, but it ends up in Cleveland by way of Chicago. Mm-hmm. My mother coming up from the rural south and the benefits she had, which was considered wealth, she had land down there, and uh, my grandparent, great-grandparents actually were sharecroppers and uh, went up to Cincinnati. There were children of both the white family and then also the, the brown family. You know, people of African descent could not inherit land right. from the white side of their family, yeah. although in this case, the father actually liked his brown children, but he could not actually give the land to them because that wasn't allowed in Alabama. Wow. So they went to be sharecroppers in Cincinnati and bought the land from their father made wow. a deal with their father. And so we ended up having the Willis land. So my mother's so unusual to be able to buy the land. Wow. I mean that really is it's really it's an, you have a really really special family. I, that, I that think so for many reasons, but that's one of them. <laughs> Actually, I've hung out with her family and I know they are very special. They are some fun people. But but, but seriously. Anyway, yeah, but yeah, so yeah, like I said they became sharecroppers. They did the whole piece of picking oranges and all that sort of thing in Cincinnati, went back, made a deal with their dad, actually bought the land and we had the Willis land down mm-hmm. there. It is an unusual story because you weren't allowed to inherit from whites. Anyway, so anyway, they bought right. the land, but my mother was raised 
raised on the land. And so they didn't even have to deal with cash. They were literally living off of the land. Wow. Uh, so they had animals and they, my great grandmother had the crops. So it was all the agricultural side. And then granddaddy, my, her father wow. had the animal side. So the husbandry side. Yeah. So anyway, so she goes up north again through the great migration. They meet. And I'm born. So my dad had just come back from the Marines from Korea, you know, the Korean War. War. And so he had some benefit from the GI Bill, but not like the whites who actually Mm -hmm. served in the war. Right. Mm -hmm. So but he comes, but he does get uh, some monies and they're young and married. Dad did great at East Tech High School, which was a school of, for gifted kids. And he's one of the few people of African descent that actually did so well and became a track star and all that stuff. So he had done some well things, although the 12 children lived in destitute poverty. That story means that only my father and only two other siblings of the whole lot of 12 made it out of destitute poverty in Cleveland today, this moment. This moment, my cousins still live in destitute poverty. So he is the unusual one that made it out. But that's probably because he did the Marine Corps. Yep. So it was that experience that that I get born into. And dad says, I'm not raising my kids here because they'll be a part of this whole cycle with the family. I'm getting out. So we went to race to Cedarville, Ohio instead, Ooh. where I actually, <laughs> I was thinking, I thought that racist was part of the name. No, no, no. It's Cedarville, but we have a, a qualifier there. We have a qualifier there, right? <laughs> okay. To go to Cedarville Bible College, which is uh, supposed to be a yes. Christian town. Okay. I didn't know it, just like the other two stories. I didn't know that we didn't have the resources that others had. I didn't know that I was in poverty. But when I think about it, it's like, yeah, I had it because dad was providing for the household, did dishwashing, did everything he could. And he said, nobody's raising my kids but their mother and their father. Mm -hmm. So mom stayed at home and made ends meet. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, on the other side of town, there was a little Pittsburgh. Little Pittsburgh was this little area where sharecroppers were, and they're mostly people of African descent and Hispanic or Latina, or Latino, and they worked in the areas around sharecropping there in Ohio. Wow! And no running water, all of those sorts of things. And we were the only black family in Cedarville living in that town because he was going to school. Oh my God! But the whole area didn't have resources, right? And yeah. little Pittsburgh was even worse. So that was my situation. Then we basically were able to kind of pull up, basically, I believe, primarily because of the GI Bill, whatever he got out of that. And my dad went to school, went to college, got his education. Then he became a a pastor in Springfield, Ohio. And we basically became a middle class family, not upper middle class, but lower middle class, middle class family that were really celebrated because my dad was pastor one of the leading churches in Springfield, Ohio. So I think the, the major lesson of this is Just hearing all the different stories is you don't know you're in poverty until somebody tells you that (laughs) you're in poverty. Yes. But when you have the added burden of the race question, the stigma of race, when you're growing up with it, you know you're different. And you know very early on that you don't have the means that others have and you don't certainly have the privilege. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. The Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, is uniting tens of thousands of people across the country to challenge the evils of systemic racism, poverty, the war economy, 
ecological devastation, and the nation's distorted morality. Will you step up and join our efforts? If you're ready to join our movement to transform the political, economic, and moral structures of our country, text MORAL, M-O-R-A-L, to 90975. Or visit poorpeoplescampaign.org to get involved. Again, that's moral, M-O-R-A-L, to 90975. Or visit poorpeoplescampaign.org. Network Lobby for Catholic Social Justice educates, organizes, and lobbies for economic and social transformation. Founded by Catholic Sisters, Network has lobbied in Washington, D.C. for federal policies that prioritize the common good for more than 45 years. In 2012, Network organized the first Nuns on the Bus trip, featuring Catholic Sisters led by Sister Simone Campbell, who drove across the country to speak out against Paul Ryan's proposed budget cuts. Since then, there have been four additional Nuns on the Bus trips to advocate for policies that mend the gaps in our nation. Learn more about Network and Nuns on the Bus by visiting networklobby.org. That's networklobby.org. So, Simone, Angelique talked about the GI Bill and its impact bringing her family up really into the middle class and creating a stable foundation there. Do you know that history? Like, could you share that? Because I also want you to talk with us about the stats to paint the picture of where we're at today. But before we get there, I want to know, how did we actually build the middle class in America? Well, the post-World War II reality, which also includes Mm -hmm. the Korean War, Mm -hmm. was a lot about the GI Bill. And what Mm -hmm. some people don't realize is that the GI Bill, which everybody thought was available to everybody, was not available Mm -hmm. to everyone by definitions put Mm -hmm. in the bill. The bill was created for members who had seen combat or were in combat designated troops. Exactly. And what happened is, for the majority of World War II, African Americans were not designated as in combat troops. And so they were not eligible for the GI Bill. Some were by the end of World War II and Mm -hmm. some part of the Korean War, they were identified as combat troops and therefore eligible for the GI Bill. Mm -hmm. But then what happened was most people didn't believe it. Colleges and universities Mm -hmm. didn't think either that people of color, African-American descent, Hispanics, could do the work, so they weren't given Mm -hmm. entrance even to use Mm -hmm. the GI Bill. Or the other piece that happened was the beginning of the big discrimination in housing lending. Because remember, the part of the GI Bill was the FHA mortgage. Yes, that's right. Federal Housing Assurance Program. Uh And that the implicit bias in the mortgage industry didn't think people of color could pay the mortgages. Wasn't it so, explicit bias, though, at well, that point? I mean, yeah, it, was it was actually literally it was within explicit. the FHA, the, the formula they used literally devalued homes that were in black areas. In black areas. See, yeah. the way they did it was more geographic, like the way mm-hmm. you were talking about right. that, Angelique, the places that were, you know, around the sharecropping place. Well, mm-hmm. it's clearly a bad place. We don't mm-hmm. want to invest our money mm-hmm. there. But that historical 
historically continued throughout our country Mm -hmm. so that those who had access to the GI Bill, mm-hmm. then couldn't use it, which is the real racialization wow. of poverty. Right. And, and, and what Ooh. we so miss in our nation, we get so, it's so painful to deal with the issue of race, but this a whole bunch of it is structural yeah. and has been caused by policies. Now, the good news about this, which I'm mm-hmm. sure we'll get to, mm-hmm. is that if it's been caused by policies, policies can change it. Hello. Hello. We can do it different. <laughs> but the, but facing up to what that has been is the real test of our time. Yeah. Yeah, do you want to add to that, Angelique? No, just simply to say, I'm, I'm really glad for sisters really, you know, outlining the context and the structural issues, because that's exactly what it is. So even though my father in this particular story was able to apply the GI Bill, that couldn't probably go a lot of places. He ended right. up going to a historic black school down the road, Wilberforce and Central State, because Central Cedarville Bible College had limited opportunities there for him. So he goes down the road to get his teacher certification because wow. Cedarville Bible College didn't have that. And I would dare say, although my father's he's still with me, but he's not here on this broadcast right this moment. I would dare say that dad probably didn't have enough resources to probably go anywhere else but someplace like Cedarville Bible College, although he was called a ministry and he was trying to do the ministry piece. But it was recommended when he was up in Cleveland of this other school called Central Bible College, where he, they say go to Cedarville Bible College, that he ends up at Cedarville Bible College. Wow. And he's like one of like four students in the whole student population. And just FYI. Four black students in the whole student population. Yeah, the whole, that's what I mean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So at Cedarville Bible College, he was probably one of like four people of African descent. There are probably a couple of from, from the continent of Africa where mm-hmm. the missions part was so important and a couple more of African descent in the United States. So yeah, pretty isolated experience. Wow. So Simone, break down the numbers for us. Can you paint the picture of what does poverty look like today? Well, the real challenge is that we think of the image of poverty in our nation as the sharecropping mm-hmm. reality, right. is the no water, dirt floor, mm-hmm. real poverty. But 21st century poverty is really different. It's huh. about 20% of our population are living in poverty. And of that 20%, about 65% to 70% are employed, and about 10% are disabled, 12% retired. And so what ends up is a very small percentage Mm -hmm. of people living in poverty are not employed in paid employment. Some are Mm -hmm. in agricultural communities, Mm -hmm. but the majority are in that hand-to-mouth, in-between struggle. Right. But the fact is, they're all in poverty. The real issue of our time for the perpetuation of 21st century poverty is the issue of wages Mm -hmm. and the fact that people do not make enough to live on. Okay. Minimum wage at $7.25 an hour only Mm -hmm. brings you $15,000 a year. $15,000 a year. Yeah. And it is not possible anywhere in this nation to raise a family on $15,000 a year. Whereas when we were growing up, when I was growing up. Yeah. I'm, I'm older than both of you, but, <laughs> or Sierra for sure as a millennial. But the minimum wage was, in fact, a living wage. 
you could live, you could raise your family on a single income Mm -hmm. and minimum wage when it first started. How about that? And this is no longer true. And that was the value. The value was to be able to have even the minimum, even the most, even the people Mm -hmm. at the bottom should be Mm -hmm. able to live Live in dignity, in dignity Mm -hmm. while working. Whoa, what happened to that? Why don't we have that value anymore? That's crazy. Wow. Well, the the problem is, here's the problem, is that the profit, I mean, there's a whole bunch of uh, policies that have gone into this, but that can be a little annoying. But the first thing is that profit making money is the big thing and that CEOs get measured by how much profit they make. Right. The pressure on profit then says, well, then we can't quite share it because if we pay higher wages, then we're not going to have as much profit. Then they have the privatization of retirement programs. So all of us have our little IRAs or little something. So we need to invest that in corporations and get return on investment. We need profit. So we become, with private retirement, become part of the fuel for not raising wages. Wow. Uh, which is, I mean, it becomes a whole system thing. And then the final piece of this is what's been happening with the gentrification of our cities and the refusal to invest in programs or systems that can help people get good wage jobs. So the nickel and diming education, Mm -hmm. nickel and diming public transportation, Mm -hmm. nickel and diming affordable housing. Our affordable housing policy is horrendous. It's terrible. It's non-existent, basically. Mm. Every year, we net lose 200,000 units of affordable housing. Mm -hmm. And that's been going on for about 20 years. So we have hardly, not nearly enough housing stock. So I was recently in South Bronx talking to these Mm -hmm. amazing women at the Mercy Center there. And they're ESL, learning the English. They're all excited. One was (laughs) so excited because her son was at Fordham and gotten a scholarship to Fordham. It was so exciting. They're working really hard. They all have employment in the afternoon, evenings, in janitorial Mm -hmm. work. Their Uh husbands are working at least two jobs. They live, I said, well, well, so how are you able to live? Are you able to afford housing here? Oh, well, the way they do it is they try to get two-bedroom apartments, and they have three families in two-bedroom apartments because it's the only way they can afford it. That's how they do it in Los Angeles, too, where I I was, where I spent 14 Mm -hmm. years in South Central. You look at those homes and you think, oh, they're so beautiful. Well, there's no poverty here because there's no projects in L.A. They outlawed Mm -hmm. projects a long time ago. But what you find is you find three mailboxes in front of one home. Yeah. So like one house actually is housing three or four families. Yeah, it's exactly that. Or the other piece that's happening is in San Jose, up in Northern California, one of the Catholic churches there opens their parking lot every evening for working families who live in their cars Mm -hmm. to bring their cars to the church parking Mm -hmm. lot so that they can use the showers in the school gym and have a safe place to park during the night. Wow. And so I would say this is actually a repeat of what we saw in the Great Migration. This is what we saw when ethnic whites came over from Europe 
into the United States, Italians, Polish. I mean, this is the cycle of poverty. Wow. That, you know, in terms of the housing, people living together. Oh, yeah. And all of that. Yeah. I mean, this is not new. What's new is that people are coming to understand this is still going on. So, and it's been going on historically. And in the case of people of African descent, still about one third of people of African descent in this country are living in conditions of poverty, are at the poverty line or less. One third. Well, about one third. And so, and then within all of this, it's the subtext, or if you will, the comparable text of hunger. Yes. You know, it's just like yes. you were saying about pizza, right? Well, these are the conditions that people are living even behind these walls of housing that is unacceptable. They're also not being able to feed their families. And then we get this battle on Capitol Hill about the farm bill. Oh my you know, gosh. I mean, a farm bill that's actually trying to empower people to be able to feed themselves tried to move on to their possible exactly building right. to the middle class. And right now we've got a markup on Capitol Hill coming in out of the House of Representatives that is totally unacceptable because it's talking about more job requirements and cutting back. And so we need to really be attentive that even our government is not coming online with solidarity for these families. Now, I want to bring Sierra back into this. Sierra, because I know that your family has actually experienced this. You've actually been on the receiving end of a lot of these policies. Does any of this feel like, oh, I know this, I know this personally? All of it. All of it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you were trying to make ends meet with your family, do you, because my mom, yeah. when my mom was growing up, she, we literally had three generations living in one house. Mm. Did your family mm. have that experience too? Did you have multiple generations or multiple families actually trying to make a smaller home work? Yeah. I mean, I definitely remember growing up, my mom was also in the military. So the piece about, you know, the mm -hmm. GI Bill really resonated with me. Especially because she was definitely cheated out of what she should have been able to receive as a naval veteran. We spent mm -hmm. a lot of time living with my grandmother when I was growing up, mm -hmm. which, you know, just has all its things within there. And then <laughs> good um, news and it, bad news. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> but, um, you know, even today, my grandmother provides a lot of support financially for my family. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, as my sister and I, I have, I'm the oldest of four, and there's like a 10-year gap between the younger two siblings. So mm -hmm. my sister and I, who were out of the house and have graduated college, we try to support our family when we can, even though we're struggling ourselves and going back to the issues of Graduating from college, I mean, student debt in this country amounts to $1.3 trillion. And that's 44 million Americans who are being affected by student debt. And, like, that's just another way. You know, I think about poverty also in the way that it isolates us, but also in the way that it controls our movement and our ability to, to do certain things. And I think student debt is definitely something that keeps me up at night and mm. I wake up with in the morning. It's a very real thing for me. Sierra, tell us, what is it that we need to understand about poverty that we may not understand? That living it, stuff starts to get clear. What has gotten clear to you about poverty that we may not understand or people who haven't lived it don't understand? One of the things that I've come to understand in this, you know, especially with the campaign, you know, it's funny, one of my first experiences with the campaign, I went to Grays Harbor County, Washington, in Washington State, 
where most of the people there are poor white people. I think it's like 97 and 90%, 98% white population. Mm -hmm. And they have the highest incarceration rate of nonviolent youth offenders. And I remember the first day we had a breakfast with chaplains on the harbor. And so we cooked food for the local community members. It was uh, pancakes and, you know, what have you. There's this one woman who came in and, you know, she was there and at first, you know, she wasn't eating. She was trying to, like, help us do things. And she was like, oh, you know, I'm here. I'm not poor, but I'm here to just support. And it was just interesting that, you know, that's her first dance coming in, you know. Hmm. And, like, throughout the day, you could see her feeling more comfortable with being around folks that were able to identify themselves as being poor. And that, you know, it was becoming, like, the norm, and that was sort of the culture of the room. And so you see her start to ease up, starting to take food, you know, here and there. And then Mm -hmm. she had a plate. And then, you know, by the end of the day, she was like, I'm a poor person. And, you know, (laughs) so I think that one of the things that I've come to understand within this work and within my own life is just that there are many of us who are living in poverty. I'm so grateful that you all have been able to come through with the statistics on how many people are living in poverty. And and I think that that's just at the defined poverty level that the United States is going by. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the supplemental poverty measure that like brings in the basic needs that you need, food, clothing, housing, and water, it's actually 43.5% of the population oh is living mm-hmm. in poverty. Yep. That's almost half of the population living in poverty, but we treat poverty like it's this issue that's affecting like these people that aren't seen. And, you know, and mm-hmm. I think that this campaign is really focused centrally around raising these questions of what is poverty? Like, what does poverty mean? What does it entail? Second question oh. being like, who are the poor? And then the third question of like, what is the leadership of the poor? Like, what what is our legacy as poor people, as working people in this country and also abroad, you know, where our families are coming from? What is the legacy of the leadership of the poor and the struggles that we've been able to wage together when mm-hmm. we are unified and how we're able to win? And it's really going back to that first question of like, what is poverty for us to be able to identify ourselves as being poor people? to serve as the basis of that unity that we so need in, in order to be in true struggle together and in order to uh, wage revolution Amen. Um, against these systems. So I know that Angelique is Angelique actually is going to have to leave us pretty soon because she is co-moderating the Ecumenical Advocacy Days, which are the weekend of the taping here. So I want to make sure that we get in the fact that Angelique works for Bread for the World and you guys are laser focused on this question of hunger. Mm-hmm. So what is it in particular that you guys are doing right now in order to like, what would you, how would you guide us to actually get engaged in the work that you're doing? And is there a way that we can begin to walk in lockstep with the work that you're doing. Thank you so much, Lisa, Sharon. And just really, just to say how much I've enjoyed being on this program and this opportunity. I just want to say quickly, just Mm -hmm. something about the issue uh, that my sister, Sierra, is raising. Mm -hmm. And that is that, just like what Dr. King said about the race issue back in, I think it was like 64, 65, there's this wonderful clip with him with NBC, talking about how this country has stigmatized race, right? Yes. Well, we've also stigmatized the poor. Yes, that's right. By saying they are the poor or the label of just the poor, when it's true that 
people who live in these economic conditions, and you need to be really clear mm -hmm. that we're talking about economic conditions. We're talking about conditions that are not acceptable for humanity to prosper, that we stigmatize the poor. They're this, they're that, you know, as opposed to saying, these are people who have the human dignity to prosper. Yes. Right. So we try to put them over in a box over here somewhere mm -hmm. when the reality is this country, if it wasn't for folks who were in that situation, we wouldn't have this country that we have now because that's the way we started. All of us started in some way. That's right. Some of us started even further behind in terms of being enslaved. I mean, we have to talk about that. Oh, and wow. we're also indentured servants. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, this is the history of this country. And we stigmatize people. We put them over there somewhere. When we have to do what I believe Sierra is saying with the Poor People's Campaign, we have to raise the voices. Mm -hmm. We have to raise the dignity of people who are living in economic conditions and say, this is not acceptable. Amen. So that leads me to the answer to your question. Yes. And that is that Bread for the World is what we're trying to do. It goes back to what Sister Simone said about policies. If we have the will, if we have the will, we've been able to demonstrate when we have the will, we can change this. So the nations of the world have said we have the will for the sustainable development goals instead of the millennial development goal, mm -hmm. that there is a sustainable future from us. The governments have said that. But now we need to really get to those outcomes and those objectives to get there. The same is true with our own congressional leaders. We need them to have not only the right farm bill, we need to have a whole legislative agenda that really takes these issues seriously. Now, Bread for the World, we like to think we've identified what some of those issues are. We're looking at jobs. We just released our Hunger Report Jobs Challenge Report. That's how we get to sustainability, mm -hmm. is being able to have people have full employment, be able to be paid entrepreneur employment. and paid, paid employment. That's right. That's right. With all of the benefits <laughs> that's real. That, that go with that, right? Mm -hmm. We need to have this larger vision of how we empower people to be what it is they're seeking to be. And that's what we do at Bread for the World. So we would love for you to be outspoken against this farm bill that's been proposed mm -hmm. by the House of Representatives that I've just mentioned. It is not, the markup is not acceptable. When is it coming up? Like, when do we need to be aware oh, of that? Like now. now. Right now. <laughs> like now. Oh my gosh. So like, this is like a really this is fortunate, like, that's why timed I'm, time. Okay. That's exactly right. This right. is the moment. This is your time. Okay. And I know Sister Simone probably has a place you can go to the Poor People's People Campaign does too. <laughs> exactly. But I'm here with Bread for the World, so www.bread.org. And okay. we will give you the talking points. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us, Angela. I'm so glad I'm honored. We are seriously going to miss you in the last part of our, oh, of our conversation I'm here. So but sorry. I do want to thank you for, for dropping by. And I want to thank you for inviting me. And all the best to both of my other sisters, Sister Simone and Sayara. God Absolutely. Mm -hmm. God bless you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thinking Cap is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment we find ourselves in, full of protests, anger, and activist momentum, Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod.
So, Simone, you have a story that you wanted to share earlier, and it's related to how much work it takes to be poor. So would you share that with us? Oh, I'd be delighted to, because this is what people don't realize about poverty, Okay, is how much work it is. Mm. I, I was giving a talk up at Chautauqua. It's a place for mm-hmm. wealthy folks being very esoteric, and I was talking about income and wealth gaps in our nation. And one of the guys in the audience raised his hand and said, well, why don't they, they just organize? And I said, well, do you know how much work this is? And started talking about flexible schedules and all this. I then did, was doing a book signing. And Anne, the woman from the bookstore, stopped me afterwards. She said, I'm so glad you mentioned how much work it is and told me her story. She and her husband both have master's degrees in the recession, which you talked about, Lisa. Right, right. They both lost their jobs. Oh, my God. They have four kids. They lost their house. They lost one of their cars. They ended up finally, he got seasonal contract construction work. She got the job at the bookstore making barely above minimum wage. Wow. And they're living in a two-bedroom apartment. She says, we have to decide if we have enough money to drive to the grocery store or should we schlep the groceries about two and a half miles because that's what we can do. We can't ever buy prepared meals because we can't afford it. The kids are all working in the farms this summer and we're trying to save and can vegetables and be prepared for the winter Mm. because that's when my husband doesn't have work. This is so hard and it takes so much time. Wow. I had never thought of poverty that way. We don't. We don't don't think of how much time goes into surviving Amen. and how much energy and thought and discipline it takes actually to survive when one is poor. I want to bring us to the question of how we actually get out of poverty. How do we end poverty in the United States? So I was actually doing some research and in 1959, the white poverty level was 18%. So that's actually pretty high. I mean, if you, I don't know if you remember, but around the time of that big recession, it got to 9% and people were like ready to jump out of windows. They were saying, it's a new depression. But we actually had had a white poverty level of 18% in 1959. But 55% of people of African descent in the United States in 1959 yeah. were living below the poverty line. And so, you know, in the middle of that, you know, hashtag that, (laughs) my great grandmother, Elizabeth, was working in an upscale hotel in in Philadelphia. She was the baker and she would take her extra pastries that were left over every night home and literally distribute them to the neighborhood. When I found that out, I was like, oh, my gosh, like my my grandmother was in some way filling in the gap where there was no safety net. Like the neighborhood, they they created the safety net for each other back then. And this is the heart of it. This is what Sierra was talking about, about that town in Washington, Mm -hmm. is that where you are community, where we are community, then we can support each other. And that Mm -hmm. is probably one of the biggest challenges we face right now is the focus on individualism and the fact that you're supposed to do it alone. That's an unpatriotic lie, this individualism. It really is about community. And your grandmother is like the perfect example of what community does. Exactly. I've got a little extra here. Let me share it. We care for each other. Exactly. And that's kind of deep, too, because when you think about this latest tax bill, which you just recently wrote about, right? Like, Talk about the cutting back of community or the sense of 
we, we don't see each other as community in the United States. I mean, I was thinking back in 1964, Lyndon B. Johnson launched his war on poverty. And I think it was because we had a greater sense of the community of the commons, like the greater commons, right? And so he launched that war on, now I got the stats, y'all. So, so get this. So he institutes food stamps and Head Start and Medicare and Medicaid, block grants, right? So block grants, money given to communities directly. Community development block grants. Community development. We have to be, we have to be a little careful because oh, okay. some of these oh. politicians oh, are trying right. to put everything in just one bag and just give it out to anybody oh, who wants so it. So uh, uh-uh. community development block grants for the communities to work at their local development. That's good. That's yeah. good. Thank you for that. Thank oh, you're you. welcome. Happy to. <laughs> but see now, look. Ten years later, in 1974, you have only 30 percent of Black people are in poverty. This only took 10 years. Yeah. 10 years. We had a drop in the poverty level of 25 percent. 25 percent. Right. And get this: the white poverty level dropped from 18 percent to 8.6 percent in just 10 years. Now. We've had the racialization of poverty that came with Nixon after that. And, of course, then the funds were drained. And and now we have the situation we have now, which is what you talked about earlier, Simone. And here's my point. We know we can do it. Angelique actually said, we know we can do it, but we lack the will. So, Sister Simone, you wrote recently, and in your piece, you called us back to the common good. In fact, you actually said we need to do an about face. We need to, because the direction we're going in right now is toward that individualism you were just talking about. So, a lot of folks don't really understand what this common good concept is. Can you help us to, what is that? What do we mean by that? Well, that means where we realize we're in this work together. Mm -hmm. And what gets missed is that our society challenges us to work together for the sake, not just of me and mine, Mm -hmm. but we and ours. That we are a we across racial lines, across ethnic lines, across economic class lines. We're all in this together. I am dependent Mm -hmm. on you and you're dependent on me. Mm -hmm. And that's why we get things like needing fair tax bill, not like this ridiculous thing that they passed, that will invest in our nation, that will invest in roads and highways. I I was on a talk radio show yesterday with this uh, guy up at CBS in in Philly, and (laughs) he's all a conservative individual. And he said, well, yeah, yeah, I've got my community, my common good. I mean, you know, I work in the Boy Scouts with my kids. And I said, right. And have you taken over some of your potholes in your neighborhood? And are you building the school that you need for the kids that are coming afterwards? Is mm. that what you're mm. doing? Okay. And and he said, well, no, no. And, and my city's not doing good, very good work at the pothole either. And I said, good. Well, then get engaged and let's do it together. Right. But this is where our voices become important. And one of the things that I love about Pope Francis, who, since I'm a Catholic sister, I'm going to add this in because, <laughs> yes. because his recent exhortation is he described five characteristics of holiness, and one of them is community, that if we're in community, that is an evidence of holiness. Another one is joy and humor. Uh, A third one is engagement. And so in our world today, to be holy, 
to be the person that, at least for me, the gospel calls me to be, is to be engaged with one another. Wow. And, and that's the kind of work, Sierra, that you're doing, right, with the Poor yes. People's Campaign, is that you're helping people get engaged in their community so we know we're in this together. That's why all these movements are so important. That is so awesome. Sierra, Dr. King was assassinated while mounting the Poor People's Campaign 50 years ago and helping the sanitation workers in Memphis. And now Reverend William Barber and Reverend Liz Theo Harris are mounting the new Poor People's Campaign. Can you tell us about that campaign? What, what is the goal of the campaign? How does it work? Yes, definitely. And I, and I definitely I also wanted to speak a little bit to the point about the racialization of poverty because poverty has indeed been racialized, you know, like as you all said, under the Nixon era and so-called welfare mamas who are black women. But in actuality, although people of color are disproportionately affected by poverty, the fact of the matter is 17.2 million white people are living in poverty. Mm -hmm. 11 million are Latinx living in poverty, 9 million are black folks living in poverty. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think that that is really big because I think that we are still seeing the face of poverty as being black and brown mm-hmm. when it's in fact hurting so many white people as well. I mean, the average homeless person in this country right now is 11-year-old white girl. Mm. That's the average homeless person. And I think that that is really key because, as you were saying just before, it's just like we need for folks to see the fact that we're all being affected by this system and that we're all in this sort of sinking ship together. The Poor People's Campaign, a national call for a moral revival, it's really about uniting these different struggles. You know, one of the things with the campaign that has been wonderful is that we haven't had to encourage or pull at people to get involved with ending poverty. There are people who are focused on ending poverty, whether it's direct or, you know, in in a tackling at these other systems that are entrenched or interlocked with the system of poverty, like militarism, mm-hmm. like systemic racism, like ecological devastation, and definitely like the distorted moral narrative, how our society and how our politics have been hijacked by this right-wing evangelical push to define what our reality is and and where we want to go as a people. And so Mm. the Poor People's Campaign, again, I think it's about looking at those three questions of what is poverty, who are the poor, and the significance of the leadership of the poor and the dispossessed, and the power that we have as we unite and struggle together, just as we united and struggled together to end slavery, which was, I think people don't talk about the movement to end slavery enough and how that it was a revolutionary process. Absolutely. Um, You had people coming together, poor white, enslaved and free black people, the Native Americans, Latinos, who saw that the system of slavery wasn't working for them, for us and united to end it. And that completely changed an economic system, um, which I think is really key. We don't think about slavery in the terms of economics, but that's literally how capitalism 
was advanced in this country was well, through parts the selling. Of Careful. <laughs> parts <laughs> of it. I think, I think, Sarah, one of the points that you're making that's really important is the intersectionality of who's adversely impacted. But I think one of the things we have to be really clear about now in the 21st century is that people go in and out of poverty because it's so wage related. Mm. It depends upon the job they have and the amount that they're getting paid. Mm. And this is one of the things that can change it very much for the future. We're not dependent upon the crops that we raise in our backyards. We're dependent on our wages. And the fact is that probably the key policy that would make a difference in this? Yeah, tell us that. It, okay, there's some basic policies that would make a difference. Yeah. One is to have what we call a living wage, a wage where we make enough to be able to support our families on mm. it. And for us, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, has this great calculator, living wage calculator. And so one of our policies that we're pushing is that there be a living wage. It will cost all of us to pay a little bit more in prices, mm -hmm. but they can also reduce profits and CEO salaries, bring CEOs down to closer to the rest of the, their workers, mm -hmm. then what we will know is that everybody could live well. And folks that then lose a job, yeah, they're going to have a period of living in poverty, but with good support systems for unemployment benefits, which keep trying to be eroded, then people can get the next job. So that family-friendly workplace, so we have paid time off, paid family leave, being able to have sick days. You know, most of the fast food restaurants, I'm sure Sierra knows this, most of the fast food restaurants don't have paid sick time. So people go to work when they're sick. Now, that's not a good public health policy. That's ridiculous. Yeah. So we need to be able to make sure that our people, when they're sick, that they can stay home, get well uh -huh. before coming back to work. And finally, is tax policy. Our tax policies are driving this preference for people at the top, not for the rest of us. And so tax policy, like the earned income tax credit, expanding that, the child tax credit, expanding that and making it refundable, those kinds of policy. This is how you know I'm from D.C. So I'll oh, talk totally. Wonkish stuff. Network but, lobby. Hello, yeah, somebody. <laughs> exactly. But there are policies that make a difference. And yes, it is true, the racial wealth gap continues to be horrific. The average, average white family has 13 times the wealth of, of families of color. Mm -hmm. I mean, but that is all by policies and principles that we can change. And so I think Sierra's made a good point that it's by having people speak out and raise up a voice so that we all wake up mm -hmm. to what's actually going on in our nation. It's not the sharecropper image from the 30s. That's so the thing, the thing that I that I want to I want to piggyback on something you said, and then I want to bring it back to Sierra because I want us to be able to know how to plug into the Poor People's Campaign as well. But what you just said is striking. Let's talk about this tax thing because I don't think people understand how the current tax law actually works against poor people. I mean, I had my own tax preparer say to me, well, no, this actually benefits everybody. And I had to explain to him that, okay, while the actual tax law doesn't necessarily take a mallet to the heads of poor people, what it does do is it funnels money from the federal pot 
right. right? Right. Away from and gives justification. So can you explain that? Sure. What the tax policy did was to create an additional $1.3 trillion in national debt in order to give money permanently to corporations and for seven years to people at the top. Only a very... Well, it works out about 30% of the benefit goes to the bottom 70% of the people, and the rest goes to the people at the top. Now, you would think, okay, what's that about? Some of it's about the expanding the child tax credit to people who are richer and don't really need it. Mm -hmm. They did nothing to expand the child tax credit or to increase its refundability to people at the bottom. They did not improve the earned income tax credit. They did nothing for the hardworking, low-income families in our nation. Mm -hmm. But the subversive thing that they did is they're now creating, they just voted on this god-awful balanced budget amendment. They said, oh, no, we have a deficit. Oh, what a surprise. Oh, we have to pass a balanced budget amendment or we'll have to balance the budget. And what that means is we'll have to cut all of our economic social programs because we can't afford them as a nation. That is a lie. Wow. And it is an unpatriotic lie geared to protect those at the top and not the rest of us. So what they've done, and I just want us to be clear about this, okay, y'all? Because seriously, we just got finished paying our taxes. Some people who got an extension will pay them later. Yes, yes. <laughs> I feel your pain. I feel your pain. <laughs> but like, let's be very clear. What they are doing is they are drawing money from the common pot. Yes. And then saying, we need a smaller pot. Right, because we don't it doesn't have money in it. Doesn't that go in the way we thought it might? It's it's not actually logical, and it is value driven. It's it, the value is to value those at the top as opposed to everybody else. And, and by the and top, I think the the thing that we have to look at is that it is driven by a policy that believes we shouldn't help people in poverty because they say people living in poverty are lazy. Uh. And what I realized. Lisa Sharon, is that mm -hmm. that is a defense mechanism because in our economy, we're all vulnerable. And what I was saying to Sierra about how we go in and out of, of low income status in our current economy based on jobs. The fact is, if I think everybody living in poverty is lazy, I know I'm not lazy. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I don't have to be afraid of living in poverty. The reality in our 21st century economy is we all should be nervous. It could be us at any moment. And it's all based on jobs. It's based on a stock market that's nuts. And it's based on a politics that's nuts. So we need to be aware. But this defense mechanism mm -hmm. that it, I'm not lazy, therefore I won't be poor, doesn't work. we got to face the truth. We're Amen. in it together. We're in it together. Amen. Is there a way that we can get plugged into the work of Network? Yes. Networklobby.org. Just uh, come on our website. Follow me on Twitter, please. I'm trying to increase my Twitter following. It's <laughs> My handle is SR underscore Simone, S-I-M-O-N-E. Please join me on Twitter. Awesome. And then Sierra, how can people get plugged in with the Poor People's Campaign? Yes, I think the best way is that uh, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, Poor People's Campaign, a national call for a moral revival, and on Instagram, at Poor People's Campaign, and on Twitter, you, at Unite the Poor. And then you can also email me at C.M.O.I.R.E. Taylor, that's T-A-Y-L-O-R, at gmail.com. Again, that's C as in cat, 
dot M as in Mary, O-I-R-E, Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R, at gmail.com. All right. Well, thank you guys so, so much. I was I was reflecting this morning on what's the scripture that kind of holds all of this, the value for engaging the issue of poverty for me. And it really comes down for me, it comes down to this. Do we love God? Hmm. Isn't that the question? You know, if you love God, then you will actively love God's image on earth. In every corner of there, there'll be no place where God's image is that you won't love. And so I want to leave it with that. We will love God's image everywhere. Amen. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road Podcast is recorded at the studios of the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road Podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us, and you can follow me at Lisa S. Harper on Twitter. We invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop on the first day of each month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road.